Well, hey, there you have it. It is a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day here in Franklin, Tennessee. I trust it is where you are as well. You know, most of us know by now that we need to carry our sunshine inside us. So it doesn't really matter what the weather's like. It's a beautiful day if we got that sunshine inside us. Well, I'd like to remind you with a little U2 there in opening these Tuesday night sessions that uh, we do enjoy the things we do. We have a lot of people who are figuring out how to do work that they love. Tonight we're going to be talking with my good friend Scott Stearman, who is an example of doing very creative work, the kind of work that a lot of people dream about and think is not possible. So we're going to unpack that a little bit, talk about the life of the artist. Scott, welcome in. Thank you, Dan. It's great to be here. Hi, everybody. Ah, yes, indeed. A lot of you have heard indirectly, at least, about Scott's work. We'll be talking about some of the things, some of the ways, the wonderful ways he's been connected with our 48 Days family and our personal family over the years. So this is not just one more business connection, but Scott is a trusted friend for a lot of reasons. Uh, one of those being he is the grand my goodness, what do they call you? What what do they call you to my grand? I'd be happy to be the grandfather, but I think that's your role. I'll I'll, I'll step into Godfather. <laughs> Godfather, I couldn't get it out. Godfather to seven of my grandchildren who live right there in the same town that he does, Woodland Park, Colorado, up in the mountains where my oldest son Kevin has chosen to live, and Scott lives there as well, and he and his. Beautiful wife, Hermine, our godparents to those children. Should anything happen to Kevin and Terry, we'd be coming to see Scott and Hermine a lot with those kids. You'd have your hands, you'd have, you'd have your hands full, wouldn't you? Oh my word! Yeah, at at, uh, at this age, the idea of of uh, having a uh, having having a five year old in the house that's that would be a, that would be a new experience. <laughs> you know, at one point. Joanne and I calculated, and and if if certain people would have died at the right time, we would have been godparents to like 29 children. Now, fortunately, those days are long gone, and I assume those people have uh, changed the deal there. Of course, most of those kids are grown up at this point, but you know that would have been some experience. Well, it's nice to have trusted friends, that I, as I know you guys have been to Terry and Kevin for many years now, and we're delighted to know that. You're willing to be in that role should something arise. Of course, some of those seven children are growing up at this point or are off, off to college themselves. So the, the caretaking role would be changing some for them anyway. Well, Scott, I want to talk a little bit. I've really got about three different areas that I want to talk about here. One is you are an internationally recognized sculptor. And um, you know, we, we have here in our property, as you know, an eagle carved out of a tree. That's a different process. Uh, wood sculpted is a different process. You start with a clump of clay and make something beautiful out of it. Tell us a little bit about that process, but then I want to back up a little bit, describe your own moving into that role when you recognize that about yourself. But tell us just a little bit about the, the physical process of being a sculptor. Sure. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of people think that uh, carving and sculpting is kind of the same thing, and it essentially is the same thing as far as the end product you're you're, you're hoping to get to. But the the tree on on your property, they started it from the outside and worked in, 
And when I sculpt, I sculpt with oil-based clay, so I build an armature and I start on the inside and work out. So I'm working out toward a finished surface, and and a, a carver starts with a uh, starts with a, a rough shape and and works in toward the finished surface. So it's we're working two different directions, but hopefully we both get to the same point. Um, well, you know, the, the, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. The the uh, the process one, once I once I sculpt. Uh, whether it's a whether it's a miniature, or, you know, a, a small piece that's 10, 12 inches tall, that's a, you know, home bookshelf size, or a monumental uh, piece that goes in a park, uh, it's essentially the same process of, that I that I create I create the the finished image in my studio in oil-based clay, and then there's a process of molding, going back and forth, making a wax pattern, a ceramic shell mold. And pouring bronze, so uh, most of my most of my big works, the eagle that's on the 48 Days campus, uh, it's bronze and it's poured. It's it's a hot cast process in a foundry, 2100 degrees molten metal, poured into a ceramic uh, mold that's that's made from the pattern of the original clay that I create in my in my studio. So it's it's quite a process to get go back and forth to get from clay to bronze, but uh, honestly, there are probably fingerprints on the eagle that's sitting on on your campus there, Dan. Uh, that that I put in the clay in my studio and it showed up in the bronze. So it it renders detail and renders renders my uh, the story I'm trying to tell uh, pretty accurately. Yeah. Well, what you, what you do, of course, has, has been seen around the world, and it's the kind of thing, you know, when we talk about finding work that you love, it's the kind of thing where you usually have a very unusual path end up there. I mean, usually, you know, kids don't grow up thinking, gee, I want to grow up and be a sculptor. They think I want to grow up and be a policeman, an airline pilot, a fireman, a doctor, those traditional kind of degrees and occupations. And also, it's not the kind of thing where you're going to sit down with the guidance counselor as a sophomore in college, and the guidance counselor is going to say, hey, I think you ought to be a sculptor. It's a very unique individual path to get there. Tell us a little bit about your own career path. Yeah, I started uh, during college. I started working in television. And as just as a cameraman, camera operator, that kind of that kind of evolved into being a producer and a director, and and uh, a, a lot of the process of of producing video pieces is all about telling a story, and it's 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 the same creative process. That I went in, that I would go through to create, uh, like a, a documentary or a story or a profile of an individual with film or video. I, I recognized quickly there were parallels between what I did there and what I, what I do with sculpture. So I did that career until I was 32 years old. And at age 32, I had started dabbling in sculpture. I actually, I went into, you know, I went in some galleries and I looked at bronzes and I loved I loved the sculpture, and I looked at the price tags, and I went, the only way I'm going to ever be able to afford one of these is if I make it myself. So <laughs> I went to work 
and and started uh, I started sculpting and had had some success while I was still in the film and video business. And uh, uh, but at age 32, my wife and I decided it was time for us to do a life change, and we literally sold everything, loaded a U-Haul trailer, and moved to Colorado with a thousand dollars in our pocket and said, let's go build a life in the mountains where I've always wanted to live. A kid growing up in Kansas always wanted to live in the Rocky Mountains. And so that that decision from a career standpoint afforded us the opportunity to kind of land and, and plant ourselves where we wanted where we wanted to live. So we moved out here in 1985 and, and started to build our life in the mountains. So that, that creative that creative journey uh found me in Colorado at age 32, having said, I'm moving to the mountains and I'm going to become a sculptor. Uh, So I wrote the check with my mouth, and now my body has to cash that check. So I had to get to work and and just start figuring it out and just really try to refine my craft and, and get to the point where I could create something that maybe someday somebody might actually want to put it in their home and they might actually pay me for my efforts. So that was that was a dream and 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 to now be at this point, you know, 29 years later uh of having done that for almost 30 years, it's 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 I mean it's pretty amazing when I think about where I started and and kind of where I am today. I I never would have imagined to be at this point. Now when we talk about being a sculptor, Scott, I mean, it's one of those things where uh, I, I have a, a piece of art, a painting here in my office, a young man who was a pastor and then made a dramatic change, uh, rightfully so, in figuring out what God had really gifted him for. And so he does these beautiful pieces of art. He's never had an art lesson, but he developed into a really highly recognized artist. Have, did you at any point you know, go take lessons on sculpting, or have you developed just organically by doing it and learning as you go? You know, I've, I've taken some workshops, but I didn't start out. Uh, I didn't start out pursuing training and then became a sculptor. I, I, I guess uh, if you asked people around me who knew me back then, you know, that I did have an aptitude. That my first efforts were were kind of successful as far as the response that I received from people around me, and and I've tried to pay attention to the voices around me, and 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 what are people saying, and what am I hearing, and what am I being reinforced on, and what am I not being reinforced on, and so that encouraged me enough to to kind of to kind of keep going. Every project was was basically going to school because, you know, I would work on it and it wouldn't look right and I wouldn't know why it didn't look right, but eventually I would figure out what was, what I needed to fix, what I needed to change. So it, was a, it wasn't a path of just saying, oh, I'm going to make a sculpture of this and then making it. It was making a sculpture of that and it looks like Gumby and I can't figure out why it doesn't look right and I have to go through the process of learning and educating myself through trial and error uh, and making mistakes, tearing it apart, starting over, and and rebuilding from the beginning. So I I I got there without formal education, and 
um, you know, later on in my career, I, I, I ran into sculptors who actually had formal education, and they started studying it in college. At you know, there's only a few schools that offer uh, the kind of sculpture I do, which is you know, very realistic representational human figure, uh, kind of traditional classic uh, sculpture. Uh, there are only only a few schools that offered that. Lots of schools offer sculpture classes, but it's mostly with you know very contemporary uh, uh, theme uh, or style. So I I didn't have that formal education and wished I had, but I did I did take workshops. But I I I found that every time I go every time I would go in a gallery, I would see someone who's doing it well. And I would look at what they're doing, and I would go, "How is how's he doing? Look at how he did her hair on this." Okay, I think I know. I think I can figure out how to do that. Or I would look at, you know, the the composition, and 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 so I was going to school every time I encountered someone who did it better than me, and and I I would gravitate toward those. There was one guy that I just I looked at everything he did because I went, if I could ever be as good as him. I would feel like I had arrived. I still don't feel like I've arrived, but but I'm chasing it. I'm chasing it pretty well. Uh, <laughs> now, when you talk about you know being an artist, and it's one of those things that seems to be kind of elusive because there's not clear training for what people end up doing when they really are recognized in their area, their, their craft. But you know, when when did you, golly, when did you recognize this draw? <clears throat> To the kind of medium that you're using. I mean, could you have just as easily gone toward being a landscape designer or being the kind of a wood carver where we have some pieces out here or being an artist, a visual artist? You know, is, is art just something that kind of grips your soul and you're just finding one way of expressing it where it could have easily been another way? Or were you really just fine-tuned, honed in, Destined to be a sculptor. Yeah, I was. I mean, I was Dan. I was drawn to. I was drawn to sculpture because when I would walk in a gallery, I'd walk right past the paintings and the drawings, and I'd go right to the sculpture, and I'd look at all mm. the sculpture in the gallery, and then I would go back and I would look at the paintings and I'd look at the sketches, and you know, and I'd enjoy everything. But I was drawn immediately to the sculpture. So I think that I think there was a there was kind of an aptitude and an interest to to, to pursue that part of 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 going after art but in a bigger sense this the what 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 I try to do with sculpture and it's it it's it's what I referred to earlier about working in film and video it I I love the idea of using art to tell a story and it's not always to tell the story I want to tell but sometimes it's to tell the story of someone else and I become their hands. They have they have a, a, a longing or a yearning in their heart, and and they would like to have some visual representation of that passion or that dream that's in their heart. So in a sense, I become the hands of their heart, and I'm a, I, and and I'm kind of find myself a lot of times in a in a very honored position of handling their story, their message, the thing they're passionate about, and figuring out how to put it in a three-dimensional form that represents 
their mission or something that's, that's really special to them. I mean, that's the process we went through when we put the, the launch uh, on your campus, the Eagle. It, it was, you know, it, it, it wasn't that I wanted to sculpt an Eagle. It was that this Eagle launching into flight and, and take, you know, taking flight, it, it represented what 48 days was about. So that for me, as a, uh, I guess I would call myself a communicator, and sculpture is my medium. That for me became a great, a great experience because I was able to partner with you on helping you tell your story to people I will never meet. So that piece of artwork sits there in Franklin, Tennessee, and it communicates an idea and a, and a, and a mission and a passion to people who visit your campus. And I'll never meet them, but my voice continues to speak through the work of my hands in that in that piece of art, but it would only be a piece of art if it wasn't connected to your mission or your passion. So that's that's a real satisfying thing as an artist to come alongside someone and 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 help tell their story and be able to use what I do with my hands to accomplish that. I don't know if that made sense, but it's... Oh, my goodness. I mean, you, you jumped right into something, you know, I can't wait to get to, and that, that is how this eagle came about that is now here gracing our property, as you say, and, and it really is. I mean, what a wonderful addition. And when we... I mean, one of the things I had on my bucket list was to someday own a Scott Stearman piece. Never <laughs> dreaming years ago that we would go through this process and have something specifically designed, you know, for me and the 48 Days message. I mean, I, I just was in awe as that started to unfold. But when we started talking about that, and, of course, I've been enamored with the symbolism of the eagles for years and have it in our logo and a lot of them in my office because I love the idea they go where no one else is going and they don't have to have a crowd. They'll go alone if they need to. Just a lot of things. We started talking about an ego, and you said, well, I could do an ego with fully in flight where one wing is just kind of brushing a bush, and that would be the support system. And I said, nah, you know, I see a lot of those. And you said, well, I could do this real stately ego that's just sitting on a branch. I said, no, you know, no, I want something else. And you just, with your wisdom and hearing my voice and kind of knowing what I'm all about, and you said, yeah, why don't we do an ego with its wings extended, just coming off a branch where the momentum is too far forward to stay on the branch. It's obviously committed, and we'll call it the launch. And, I mean, I still get goosebumps when I even describe it because it so perfectly captures what I wanted it to capture. I mean, that's my message. Gather information, create a plan, take action, get in the game. That's the deal. And we have that permanently displayed, and that does. People get the message just from looking at that. And we've already had lots and lots of people see that. And as you know, we made a real dramatic setting for that with boulders and landscaping around it. My grandkids can go up there and sit with it and think with it. It's just a beautiful place for inspiration. Now, you, you yeah, I mean, the, the, the story of the story of the launch. I mean, the 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 meaning of the sculpture. Is one thing, but the but the creation of the sculpture, it it plays it it, it really ties into into those other 
those other parts of your mission because it was a get in the game and take action. Because if, if you remember, we created that at a live event, and I had never done that before, Dan, where I sat in a room <laughs> and I knew that, holy smoke, in two days I better have something for these people to look at because I'm going to be back here. I told them I'm going to create an eagle that they're going to be able to see by the end of tomorrow night. And so it, that was get in the game and take action absolutely demonstrated because I, I stepped into a place where I I had never been before, but it was like, boy, sink or swim here because now I've got 45 people who are watching everything I'm doing all day long, and I better have something to show them in two days. And, you know, sure enough, it, it worked out okay, but when you start out, you never know. You're just you're just pedaling as hard as you can go to 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 try and – put the pieces together and make it work. Well, there was there were a lot of components that came out of that, things that you kind of uh, illustrated as we went along, and you even told me and then our audience that we had here that, you know, at some point in the creation, starting with a, just a blob of clay, at some point this thing was going to look like a sick chicken. And I said, oh, yes, that's I want people to see that. You know, even when you start out knowing what your goal is and having the confidence that it's going to be something wonderful, there's going to be times in the process of getting there that aren't just all peaches and cream. So even that was a beautiful illustration. We, we have a, a gorgeous little four-minute video, time-lapse video, that another 48 Days member Jeff Long did for us, and we'll make a link to that in the show notes tonight so people can watch that and actually see the creation of the ego all the way through to the foundry process that's being forged and then ultimately shipped back here. Boy, was I nervous having that thing shipped across the country to come here. came in a very, very large box, and we very carefully unpacked that, and it's perfect in every way. Well, yeah, that that, that was that was that, the, everything about that project was just a great experience for me as as a creative person to participate with you. So it was it was a great it was a great coming together of of uh, of what you, what you are bringing and what I bring, and saying it, it it was just a it was a it was a great it was a great experience. Well, I appreciate that. It it's it was marvelous. Now, one of the things, I want to back up a little bit here because some of the questions coming in. Incidentally, if you're listening, you've got a question for Scott. Just shoot it in. If you're on the online gang over at 48days.net, you can just put it in there. If you're in the chat room, I'll see it pop up. If you're online with us, just put it there where you see the little space, and it will come right to us. We'll be happy to get to those here in a little bit too. But I know some of the questions already I'm seeing are going to deal with the, the issue I want to back you up to the point where you move to the mountains with Hermine. You're going to live in the mountains, be an artist, be a sculptor. But at some point, in order to make that work, you had to find somebody who was willing to pay you for something you were doing. Can you go back and tell us about that first experience of having somebody pay you for a piece that you did? Well, the, the, let me talk about the mentorship aspect of what helped me take my first step. I, Hermine and I were out in Colorado. We live in Kansas City. We're out in Colorado at a gallery uh, on vacation and walked in. Here was all this beautiful bronze sculpture. And up a, up a flight of stairs was the artist's studio, and the sculptor was up there working. And I walked up there, and this, this man, I'm 30, I'm 29 years old, 
I walked in. He didn't know me. And he stopped everything, turned around, focused on me, told me his process, told me how it was accomplished. He picked up a piece, handed it to me, let me hold a piece that was in progress. It was a, I remember it was a cowboy on a horse, and he handed me the horse, and it was made out of wax. And I was holding it and looking at it. And he encouraged me. He said, I, I said, this is, he said, you need to try. He said, go home and try. And he gave me a list of materials and tools, and he said, go home and do it. Well, I walked out of there. That conversation changed everything, and it was, it was a guy who had skills who took the time to tell me, you can do it too. And, and so there was a mentorship thing that happened there. I have never, I have never seen that man since. I've, I've talked to him on the phone because I wanted him to know the, influence, the impact he had had on my life. But it changed everything. And I went home and worked the first winter creating my first sculpture. And it was a, it was a Western piece, a cowboy, on, cowboy leaning on a fence. And, you know, well, lo and behold, I, I, my dad gave me enough money to cast the first one in bronze. It was like $1,000. We took that piece. He showed it to some friends. I sold five of them. Hmm. And yeah, and immediately I went, okay, wait a minute. There's something here. I need to pay attention. This this could be a good thing. And so I I I experienced a little bit of success right on the front end of of what I had done. But when I moved to Colorado, I didn't have five people lined up to buy a bronze. I you know it was it was starting out small and 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 I can tell you. Everything I have done or or everything I do, everything I've done, everything I will do is connected to my relationships with people. It was it was relationships that I had established in the past that gave me connections of people I could call and I could say, would you like to have a portrait bust of your founder for, of your company or your school or whatever? And I was able to make those connections and those calls, but it was – if I hadn't had relationships built on on a solid foundation, I never would have gotten past the front door with those conversations. So that was an incremental step to get started uh, a little at a time, one project at a time. This little project, I made $600, and the next project I'd make $500, and the next, you know. But it incrementally allowed me to go. Now, when I, with every project, I add to my portfolio. I add to my resume. I add to my record. I have examples of, oh, yeah, you, yeah, I've done that. You want to see it? Here's a picture of what, you know, I've done that. So that that was how I got started. But I, I can tell you, I mean, skill is part of it, of, of having an aptitude and an interest and a passion, but 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 the relationships you will have with, with other people that you will go into business with well, absolutely are absolutely critical uh, to having having success in the long term. You know that seems to be a common theme as we have these Tuesday night brainstorming. No matter what the area of expertise that the person is doing, it really does come back to that. Relationships are what allow you to move forward. People ask me frequently, even about coaching and writing, you know, success that I've had. And there's not a formula that I can just hand off to do these three things because the things that really launch me and continue to give me new opportunities are exactly what you're describing. It's those deep, trusted, nurtured relationships 
over years and years that just keep opening new doors of opportunity. So important. So important. Yeah, and, 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 and also, Dan, it's not just, oh, they think I'm a good guy. We get along great. We have a lot in common. It is approaching, and this is what I'm telling you, if I'm talking to creative people on this call, it is approaching what you do creatively with a solid business mind of I need to be on budget, I need to be on time, I need to respond to their emails, to their phone calls, I need to conduct this as a professional business, and it's not a hobby. It's, it is it – is, that's part that's part of what I'm saying about relationship. It's not just that they like me, but it's that they can depend on me. And they know that, that when they call me for a job that it'll be done on budget, on time, and, and good quality. Now you've done I, I want to come back to some of the kind of things, some of the themes that you've done so consistently, but I wanna just springboard from what you're talking about right here because it fits so well and that is when we talk to artistic people, a lot of times they are frustrated because they're not making any money. But we, we tell them gently that there are three legs to the stool, and you've already alluded to those in what you just said. There are three legs to the stool. One, you have to have passion for what you're doing. You've described that so clearly. Number two, you have to have talent. I mean, we've all seen kids walk on stage on The Voice or these singing programs on TV. They're passionate about it. They open their mouth, and we think, oh, my goodness, you know, who, who encouraged them? You know, but there has to be talent. But the third leg of the stool, equally important, is there has to be a market for what you do. There have to be people willing to pay for what you do. A lot of people are passionate about something in the artistic arena, whether it's music, art, or sculpting like you have, and they're talented at doing what they're doing, but they've never figured out, is there a market? They've never figured out how to engage with the market, and, and as such, they have a hobby. If there's no market for something where you have passion and talent, mm -hmm. you have a nice hobby, but that's it. So how did you start to nurture those relationships where it leads into, you know, significant dollars for the big pieces that you do. Is it word of mouth or are you constantly on the phone? Tell us a little bit about developing those relationships that have led to pieces year after year after year now that you've done. Yeah, well, every, everything I have ever done is connected to everything I will ever do. I mean, I could I could go back literally 23 years to a piece, and I could show you the genealogy of how that successful project led to this one, which led to this one, which led to this one, which led to this one. I mean, I could show you a gene. I could show you a family tree that started with that one project. And if I had allowed the the process to break down anywhere along the way by shoddy work. Uh, not being on time, being over budget, being a pain. I call it, I mean, I'll say this to my clients sometimes. I say, I say one of my goals is to take the brain damage out of this for you. Mm -hmm. This will be very easy for you. It's not going to be difficult. My, my business model has been a little bit unconventional in that it's not built around the traditional create a piece of art go find a gallery that will hang it on their wall or put it in their put it in their space and hope somebody comes by who wants to buy it that 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 
feels like a, that feels hard, and it is hard. And there are lots of lots of painters and lots of artists and lots of sculptors who have work in galleries, and they're not making any money because the work is sitting there, and then the right person hasn't walked by at the right time. One of the things that that seemed to I've already referred to this, but seemed to to fit nicely with with what uh, with what comes out of me is my interest in telling the story of another person. So my work has been mostly commission work. Right now, I don't have a gallery presence. I'm in Colorado, and I I go through these galleries in Aspen and Vail and Breckenridge, and I you know and I go, oh man, it sure be great to have my work in here. And then I look at the business model of that, and I go, boy, I'll spend a lot of money to put that piece in here, and it'll sell when it sells, and I may, it may sit there for a year. That feels, like, that feels like a really hard deal. But when I connected with a client or through my relationships, and they saw what I had done, and I had this body of work that they could look at, all of a sudden I'm plugged into their story. And, and you guys... I, I am t I am telling you I've I've observed this that that we creative people fall into two camps and some of us fall into the camp of I am here and the world should serve me I'm creative I'm talented they should buy my work they should buy my music they should listen to me I'm one of the gifted, talented ones. The world should serve me. The other camp in the creative community is I'm bringing my creative efforts into this, into these relationships, and I am here to serve. So one camp is I want the world to serve me, and the other camp is I want to serve the world. I want to serve people with my art by helping them tell their story, by beautifying their space, not making a statement about me, a statement about I'm so creative. Oh, that is a Stearman. Well, you know what? If it doesn't communicate with the observer, the fact that it's a Stearman doesn't really matter much. But if somebody walks up to one of my sculptures and they're, and they're connected to it on an emotional level, that's, that's a huge home run for me. And it's, and, and it's not that they they are uh, excited about putting their hands on a on a Scott Stearman sculpture. It's that they are excited about putting their hands on a sculpture that connects with them. That it t helps tell their story. It lets them bring a little piece of who they are and plug it into the meaning or the message of the of this piece. So it's it really comes it, it, for me. It just feels fundamental that our philosophy of why we do what we do will absolutely position us with our customers and our clients uh, as in that you are there to help them be successful as opposed to your coming in the door wanting them to give you money so that they will make you successful. That's two sides of the same coin, but, boy, they are opposite sides for sure. They are indeed. I just finished reading Rabbi Daniel Laffin's new book, Business Secrets of the Bible, and he talks very clearly about what you just described. You want to make more money? Figure out a way to serve more people. 
It totally he says making money is a natural consequence of serving people well. Well, you do that with excellence. Now, some of the things that you have done repeatedly, I mean, you, you've done a lot of faith-based sculptures. Um, you have your, you know, the, uh, an entire gallery of faith, but you got some beautiful things in there, like the calling that I absolutely adore. Um, others in there. You've done some, you know, life-size ones of a man and woman with a plow, and you've done couples, but you've done a lot of faith-based things where you've found a lot of receptivity. Part of that, I suspect, is because you so easily identify with the story behind the piece. Is that correct? Oh, ab- absolutely. And 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 it's, I mean, it's easy, it's easy for me to sculpt in, in that faith theme because faith is important to me. That's, I mean, that's something that is a daily a daily reality for me in 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 my in my life and in in in, our, in my marriage in our home uh, so it 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 feels like it's an easy comfortable subject to step into because i it's familiar mm-hmm. but but when i when i've done it especially when you're doing monuments even though it's a theme and it's a it's a the meaning is is something that's familiar, something that you understand, and it it connects with you on you know as far as what my personal what my personal faith statement would be. Uh, it still comes down to I'm talking to this church, or I'm talking to this college, or I'm talking to this organization, and I'm creating something that is consistent with my faith, but it but it absolutely speaks to their mission, speaks to their vision, their purpose, and it and it's and it tells their story to the people that they care about, to their biggest com- contributors and supporters, or the people who walk into their building or come onto their campus. Those are the people that ultimately I have in mind. Is who's going to be looking at this when I'm not around to tell it, to explain it or to tell the story? I mean, the reality, Dan, everything I've created that's in bronze is going to outlive me. So I have, to, I, I, I feel that thumb in my back that the work I do today is going to outlive me. And that's, boy, that is true for all of us because there's a legacy of the works of our hands that is going to, that is going to outlive all of us. And Hopefully. so, yeah. <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm looking at some here. And of course, any of you listening can go to Scott Stearman, just like it sounds, dot com, and go through. There's a beautiful gallery on there of pieces that you've done. Let me ask you just about a couple of these, like the calling, which I absolutely love. Where is that? Where is the original of that? The calling is on the campus of Point Loma College in San Diego. You can literally stand next to uh, next to the sculpture and see the ocean. I mean, it's it's ah. probably the probably the most spectacular setting of any sculpture I've placed is is this one because you can actually you can see the you can see the ocean. But it's wow. it's on a Christian college campus, and the theme of Christ calling Peter to leave his nets and follow him is a, is a theme that is consistent with the mission of that college. So even though this is this is a fun realistic sculpture of two 
two guys interacting, uh, it it tells a bigger story. And it and and who sculpted it every year becomes less and less and less important, more and more a footnote that'll be in some library card catalog somewhere of who the sculptor was. But the story and the meaning that is consistent with that college and their mission is what absolutely takes precedence and that that's that's what will live on. So that that's that's a great yeah. That that project was was pretty pretty successful from that standpoint. I mean I got I got paid to do it. So it was successful <laughs> that way. But but that money is long gone. But now mm -hmm. I'm experiencing the success that it is continuing to tell its story and speak the truth and communicate the mission and vision of that particular organization. So I'm experiencing success today, even though even though the money I got paid is long gone. Well, and as you say, I mean, that's certainly part of your legacy that's going to be there long after we're gone and will continue. I mean, what a wonderful way to live a life where uh, the work of your hands, literally in this case, you know, lives on to share a positive message. Well, now, knowing that you tie a message in with what you do, uh, tell me about the blind man. Where is that? And what's the message for its setting? That is on the campus of Oklahoma Wesleyan University in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. Hmm. And they had this lake in the middle of the campus, and they, they, they talked to me. Uh, I, had, I had gotten acquainted with the, with the president, and he wanted to talk to me about a, a sculpture. And so they, they had this lake on the campus, and so they wanted something that was kind of connected with water. And so they called me in, and we were sitting in the president's office, and he said, he said, I really like the story of the woman at the well with Christ and, the, you know, you know, I really like that. And we kind of talked about that. Then it occurred to me, I went, oh, man, think about the symbolism of the blind man at the pool of Siloam. He was blind, but when the scales came off of his eyes, he could see clearly. And I said, how consistent would that be with your mission? I'm talking to the president with your mission. How consistent would that be with a message to, to, to say to your faculty and staff, this is what we are here to do. We are to help people who don't see clearly to find and see truth. The interesting thing about that is, is the sculpture is he's, he's just taking his hands away from his eyes, but he's looking. You can't see it in the picture, but he's looking up the hill on the campus oh. to this huge stained glass window that's in the chapel. And so he's looking straight up the hill at Christ when he's taking his hands away from his face. So the the, the symbolism of of I once was blind but now I see. There's an educational symbolism there of of kids who come on that campus are going to are in a sense have the have the scales removed from their eyes and they're going to learn things. They're going to see life clearly. They're going to have a bigger world view. They're it's you know they're gonna they're going to leave there after four years with greater wisdom and they're going to be able to see life uh, through a fresh lens. That symbolism was, was awesome. There's obviously the spiritual symbolism of a Christian campus. Uh, I once was blind, but now I see. But uh, So that's, that's how that evolved. It, actually, the, the, the design or the theme 
came out of one conversation in the president's office where we were going down a path this way, but the, the, the meaning and the mission of the organization caused me to think in terms of, of, of suggesting a different, a different approach, and we ended up taking a left turn, and we ended up with this, uh, this sculpture. Well, Scott, not only are you gifted in crafting the piece, but you're so gifted in capturing the essence of the message like that. I mean, my goodness, you, there ought to be a recording when you walk up to these pieces, having you describe, you know, so that people don't just see a bronze sculpture, but that they actually get the full message. Now, obviously, we hope that it conveys that, but you are so gifted at telling the story just like you did with our eagle here and like, as you just did with the blind man. Hey, I want to ask you about one other one real quick here, and then we're going to move on, and that is Harvest Prayer. Again, yes. another beautiful piece of man and woman, man down on his knees with a plow. That's on the campus of Mid-America Nazarene College. That's actually Mid-America Nazarene University now in Olathe, Kansas, outside of Kansas City. And their their school mascot is the Pioneers. So that's where the conversation started was the idea of a pioneer. But the, the, the theme of harvest is obviously a biblical theme that is, that is very solid. Uh, there's a family image there that is really important in the, in the culture of that, of that university community. There's the history of agriculture in Kansas, of these farmers who came there and they broke virgin prairie sod, you know, to, to start eking out an, a living and existence. So there's that, there's that message, there's that story. Um, but the idea of it being a prayer, I mean, you know, the, the conversation started with, well, let's do a pioneer family, you know, let's do a, you know, man and wife and, and, and the idea of the prayer evolved out of that, those conversations though, of, it being not only harvest, not only family, but also an acknowledgement of the Creator's presence in our everyday work and in the results of our work, uh, the work of our hands. Uh, in the, you know, I don't know if you can see it, but he's holding a Bible in his right hand. With his left hand, he has his hand on the on the plow, and and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's it's that's that it's it's very literal. It's very, a very literal imagery that, in some circles in the art community, they kind of go, eh, you know, it's realism. You know, he, he just he just hasn't loosened up and hasn't, you know, uh-huh. he hasn't figured out how to really really get in touch with his creative whatever. And I, and I go, okay, yeah, you're probably right. I haven't, and I'm not really planning on it because this is what I do, and that's. That's I've had people, Dan, who have, and this is this is a good message for for every endeavor. I've had people. It's important to listen to our to the voices around us, but it's also important to be discerning about those voices. I've had some artists who have, who have told me, "Well, your you know your style, you're just too tight, too much detail. You just you know it needs to be freer and." And it needs to be more ethereal, and you know, you just need to loosen up, and it needs to be just sculpt the idea rather than the literal image of the idea. Mm-hmm. And I, I heard those voices, and I went, no, that's not, that's not what resonates in my heart. I have to be true to, I have to be true to what's in my heart, and this is how, this is my voice. This is how I'm going to tell the story. I'm going to use my voice. 
I'm not going to use somebody else's voice. So I'm trying to stay I'm 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 trying to stay true to that and it's ended up working out okay. <laughs> I'd say so. I think it's working out okay. Well, what what's the largest piece that you've ever done? Now most of these that I'm looking at are pretty much human life size, is that correct? The figures in there? Yeah, yeah, they're life size. Um there's a few in there that are that are what I call life and a quarter. 125 percent okay. life size, so mm-hmm. they're you know a six, you know if I used a rule of thumb of a six foot man uh, at life and a quarter, the sculpture is seven and a half feet tall. So it's you know it's and you really just make those decisions based on the setting, where the primary viewer is going to be. If it's an approachable kind of an image where somebody wants to walk up next to it. And interact with it, like the calling Jesus and Peter. People can walk right up to that, put their, you know, they can put their arm around Jesus, have their picture taken. It happens all the time on a college campus. Um, or it's if it's something that has to be seen from a, a greater distance, you have to scale the sculpture up so that it, from a distance, it still looks life size. But when you get up closer to it, you realize it's a little, a little larger. So life and a quarter is the biggest I've gone. Okay, all right. That's interesting. I wasn't. Sure, what, what you would say with that, where that was. Now, you also, you know, really then integrate the piece into a setting, like you said, the blind man looking straight up the hill at a stained glass, you know, at the chapel. You know, here, we had the conversation in doing um, the eagle that we now call Athena. We have Aristotle and then Athena, a pair here, but Athena, we talked about mounting that on a granite piece. And I talked to the people who do granite, I mean, the same people that do funeral markers, and I just could not get excited about it. It was too, too finished, too polished, and I finally came back to you and said, is there any reason we couldn't mount that eagle just on a boulder that we have here in our property? I remember your response clearly because I wasn't sure how you would receive that. And you said, oh, my gosh, that would be that would be awesome if we can do that. So you've not done that before, but if there was a way to do it, it would be more natural to see an eagle coming off a rock rather than off a piece of granite anyway. So I, we've used a lot of pieces, a lot of stones here on our property, and I couldn't find just exactly what I wanted. And I spotted in my neighbor's field, where his horses roam, the rock that I wanted. <clears throat> and of course, we got that. He was delighted to, that we wanted a rock out of his field. So we moved it over here to our property, and you came, and Kelly, we worked with a drill and drilled a hole down. People said that couldn't be done. And we did it anyway and set that in there and set it in epoxy where it is absolutely solid. But it looks spectacular coming off the rock. Rather, And, again, we created the setting so that it looks like it really fits there. That eagle greets us when we walk out the door of the sanctuary. People take breaks and stand around it. It's a natural place to take pictures and, again, conveys that image of, you know, we're going to get in the game. We're here to learn information, but ultimately we're going to be like this eagle. We're going to get in the game. Now, Scott, I know you've also done, and we're going to circle in here, but I know you've also done world changers or you've done busts of some of the more prominent people around. Tell us some of the people that you've done in that series. Uh, I'm, I just last month uh, we unveiled the portrait bust of Elizabeth Dole at a convocation. Uh, Indiana Wesleyan has, has a uh, 
has an event called the Society of World Changers. It's a it's a society, an academic society on the campus. The Society of World Changers. Every year they induct one person who has who uh, they feel like has has made an impact uh, on the world. And so they 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 came to me 12 years ago or so, and the president he said if if you'll work with us, he said we'll 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 come back to you every year, and and you know I think I've done 12 portrait busts now, uh, and they induct one person every year. Uh, Tony Dungy, when he was when he was coach of the Indianapolis Colts, uh, Kirk Cameron, the actor. Uh, uh, David Green, president of Hobby Lobby. Um, Truett Cathy. Oh yeah, Truett Cathy, uh, the founder of Chick Fil A. The uh, Elizabeth Dole, James Dobson, a uh, guy that's in the news right now, Ben Carson, Dr. Carson. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Frank Peretti, the author. Uh, Johnny Erickson. So what's been what's been really fun is obviously. Those people don't have time to sit for a sculptor, so I do photographic references, and I've been able to, all except for one, I've been able to go and actually take my own reference photos, meet the person, talk to them, take reference photos, and and that's been a that's been a that's been a terrific experience to meet all these people and uh, and work on their work on their portraits. It's it's I, again. That's the kind of uh, jump, get in the game kind of a decision. Uh, every time I do this, I go, "Oh man, I sure hope this looks like them." Good because I'm <laughs> sitting in the, I'm sitting in this academic convocation, and there's 3,500 students and the faculty, and it's a big deal, and they're all in their academic regalia, and all you know, it's a big deal. They got the orchestra and everything, and the person they're honoring comes up, and the the bust is on a little stand with a with a veil over it, and they have this moment in the in the ceremony when they pull the veil off. Uh-huh. At that point, everything I've done is on display. It either works or it doesn't. So that's I kind of like I kind of like having that pressure of I have to deliver. I can't uh, I can't not deliver. I can't cut corners. This has to be right. So that's that's been a that's been a good that's been a good thing. That's been a fun a fun process to do. Well, I do a portrait bust every year. It's, it's my small version of the NFL Hall of Fame. Oh my! And what a, what an honor. Well, you know, a lot of artists who are listening see what you do as you know putting themselves in a position of pressure. I mean, I talk to artists all the time who don't want to do commission pieces. They just want to do whatever they feel like and then hope somebody buys it. Now, you, you are willing to go into the person's story. You've done the sculptures of children who have been lost and military pieces that you've done to commemorate something. So you go into the story. So, yeah, there certainly is that pressure that uh, unveiling, and it would be uh, certainly unfortunate to have somebody say, oh, that doesn't look like me at all. But uh, it doesn't appear that you've encountered that very frequently. So I, oh, I actually, I, Dan, I actually had that happen. I did a, I did a posthumous portrait of the the patriarch and matriarch of a family, and I had the I had the portrait on my bench, and I had their son on my left shoulder and their daughter on my right shoulder. The son said, "Oh, that looks just like them." The daughter said, 
I don't think it looks like them at all. <laughs> <laughs> at that moment, you go, okay, where do, what do we need to change? What do we need to fix? So that doesn't become an indictment of me or my skill. That becomes an opportunity to investigate further. She mm. remembered them when they were in their prime and they were in their 40s. He remembered wow. them right before he died when they were in their 80s. So, you know, those are two those are two different faces uh, between 40 and 80. So, you know, that's just part of the relational part of being connected with your client and and knowing them, stepping into their story and find out what is really going on. That's just that's just part of that process. Wow. Okay. Let me let me kind of conclude with this question then. Hearing your story and seeing the, the magnificent pieces that you've created over the years, can somebody decide they want to be a sculptor? Can somebody see these pieces, hear your story, and decide, I want to do that? I mean, what are the chances that somebody can just move into that place, or does it have to be a God-given gift? Are you asking, can, can anyone do this? I've, I'm asking, I've been, can, somebody, can somebody decide that this is what they want to do? Well, yeah, that's what I did, but I but I decided it with the with the careful mm-hmm. counsel of the of the of the evidence that there was somebody who was willing to buy what I was doing, or you know, listening to the voices that were that would tell me, yeah, this is good. Voices that you can trust who will tell you the truth, not tell you what you want to hear. Boy, that's I could do a whole. We could do a whole another podcast on that issue, but but yeah, I believe absolutely. Uh, if this is something you want to do, investigate it. It's like Gene Stewart, the old sculptor in Colorado. When I was a young guy, he turned to me and he said, "Do it. Try. There's no harm in trying. If you try." And you and you have some success, you will have the answers. If you try and you don't have some success, you will have some answers. So that's 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 what I can tell you is absolutely what I, what I was told when I was first starting out is, yeah, you can do this. Try, try. And if you don't try, are, you can live with the regret of never having tried. Yeah, you 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 want to you, you don't want to create anything. You well, you'll be successful. You won't. Yeah. Well, you know, of course, we know the the easiest way to never get any criticism is to never do anything. Don't do anything extraordinary. People won't criticize you. So you got to be willing to get through that. But you know, trying to get in the game. Well, there's a lot of people who have artistic kind of bents and have been reluctant to move into that area. People have told them it's not realistic and practical. You're a great example of how you can walk into that with the affirmation of others and customers ultimately, but being able to do this as your work. This is not just a sideline hobby. This is your primary work, and it's served you extremely well. Well, Scott, we often tell people, you know, to go to your website and buy your book or buy your course or whatever, that yours is a little different. You do have some small versions of pieces that you've done that people can actually purchase, correct? Absolutely. On on the main page of my website, there is a uh, there's a link to faithsculptures.com 
and there's yeah. a link to soldierstatues.com, and those are small versions of a lot of the monuments I've done, but there are pieces in there, and, and the, the intent of both of those lines is to, is to, to allow you to honor uh, someone by presenting this to them or, or to, to put something in your own home, in your own private space, that reinforces what you're doing with your life, reinforces the, the service that, that you've participated in. Uh, uh, my endeavor is to create sculpture that, that connects with the hearts of people and reflects back to them the beauty and dignity of their life, their faith and their mission, and their sacrifice. So, uh, you know, I believe everyone has a story. To identify the noble character of the person or organization and make it known to a watching world raises their esteem and asks them to look at life through a fresh lens. Wow. If, if, if we can do that as artists, it becomes, it becomes almost holy enterprise because you're participating in helping and lifting someone and lifting someone up. I often encounter stories of the unsung, the silent servants who offer the best of their labor to their communities or their country. And in my imagination, these are always unrealized sculptures because sculptures tell a story and they tirelessly ask the future to remember. Wow. That's a great wrap-up, a great description of your work, a great description of what all of us can aspire to. Again, you can go to scottsteerman.com and see what we've been talking about here and see the visual examples of what Scott brings to life. Scott, thanks so much for carving out time on a Tuesday evening here to spend it with us, to inspire our audience. We'll put this in the archive. It'll be one I'm sure that people will go back to. Just like your sculptures, uh, this is going to live a long time where people can go back and get the inspiration from you. So thanks so much for being with us tonight. Thank you, Dan. It's been a pleasure to, to, to be here, and, and my email is on my website. If any of these artists out there want to drop me a line, I'd be happy to, I'd be happy to give you my two cents. Well, that'd be awesome. All right. Thanks so much, Scott. And with that, we'll wrap up our Tuesday night brainstorming session for the 48 Days community.